Hello. We are so glad that you could join us today. Our prayer is that as you listen to the word, you would take this time to draw nearer to God as an individual and as a family. God loves you so so much, and his desire is for you to get closer to him in this season through worship, through dwelling in his word and prayer. Well, we want to just say what a beautiful morning it is and we want to welcome you today. And uh, I want to pick up where I left off last week. Uh, I started a message called Stepping into the Light. And, uh, you know, it's so important for us as believers to learn to not only walk in the light, but to stay in the light. The Bible says uh, in, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Another verse is found in Romans 8, verse 29. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You know, I had a mentor and a very dear friend of mine, and his name was Dr. Eben Lewis Cole. And uh, he challenged me to live a Christ-like life. He used to say manhood and Christ-likeness are synonymous. Now, for us to be Christ-like is God's goal for the church and for each and every one of us. You see, God desires for you and for me to be conformed to the image of his son. That word conformed is a very powerful word. It's a, it's, a, it's a word that means that we metamorphosize. It's like becoming the proverbial caterpillar that becomes the butterfly. We're being transformed. We're being changed from one thing into another. Now, we are, when we're born again, we're instantly saved. We're instantly made into a new creature, but the manifestation of it is that transformation. We are being conformed. Uh, I'm not sure that this is happening so well in the world today. Uh, I see something happening in the church that concerns me. Instead, I see many believers, many Christians that are becoming less and less Christ-like in their lives. In fact, there's a tendency that seems that there are more expressions of anger and people are becoming uh, more disillusioned and, and this is becoming more prevalent in the lives of Christians. It is true that there is much to be angry about in the world today. There are major strongholds, strongholds of evil, and there's deep-seated oppression in our society today. Not only is evil escalating in our culture, but we're seeing more and more forms of evil being legislated and actually protected in this demonically invaded legal system that we see in the world today. This produces high levels of frustration and anger, especially in those who are attempting to make sense out of this topsy-turvy world. We are living in a world that is becoming more and more lawless, a world that the Bible described as being, or that would emerge as being where 
evil is called good and good is called evil. You can find that, in, I think, in Isaiah chapter 5. But we see that happening today. The, 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 the things that were prevalently evil in days gone by are now being called good. and The things that were good are now being called evil. Uh, that's the sign of the times. You see, where you live today has no bearing on this phenomenon. Uh, we're living in a global community, and we're all being affected at that global level. It doesn't matter anymore if you reside in a major city or in some rural setting. The boundaries of morality have been eroded. Think about the lack of restraint and the protection being given now to those who favor abortion. Uh, in the Western world, in the Western societies, we're seeing the mainstreaming of transgenderism and transhumanism. These narratives are applauded by the immoral Hollywood and the uh, there's an ever-increasing number of liberal and even satanic voices that are saying this is the way to go. These evil things are good. <sighs> this causes a holy grieving inside of the hearts of righteous men and women. Uh, and we should be deeply troubled by sin. Sin has the power not only to destroy our souls, but it also has the power to provoke the wrath of God upon our nation. So, how do you and I, how do we as believers handle evil in our society? Well, first of all, we must make it our goal to win the war and not just react to the battle. And uh, that, that's a big statement there. We uh, have many Christians that are just reacting to the conditions of the warfare or they're reacting to the battle. They only see one or two issues. Ephesians tells us in chapter 6 and verse 12, it says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. You know, whenever we find our anger and our frustration being directed toward flesh and blood enemies, we're on the wrong battlefield. And this will inevitably lead us to surrender our hope for victory. You see, God has an objective that goes far beyond the idea of simply eliminating evil. God seeks redemption, not revenge. The truth is, God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. I think the second thing that we must realize and we must come to is that the greatest challenge that you and I face as believers doesn't center around our outward appearances, things like having the correct doctrine in regard to salvation or the perfect church attendance. And, and these, these are important things. Don't, don't get me wrong. But our greatest test is the test of our hearts. You know, if we continue to harbor an angry spirit, we are walking away from Christ-likeness. And we put ourselves in danger of being some of those that are falling away from the faith. You see, our lifelong pursuit is to become like Christ. Apart from conformity to Him, we'll never be satisfied. The Bible tells us that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And that's true. But we also must acknowledge that at the same time, we are also intentionally living under the shadow of the Almighty. And that's His covering of grace over our lives. You see, God endures with our lives. 
He covers our frequent mistakes and he works with us to transform our hearts. He grants us time. <laughs> That's a commodity that he gave us. And thank God he is patient. You see, God is at work. He's at, he's at work awakening his gifts and his callings in our lives, while at the same time teaching us to walk in the love walk, to walk in love. You know, I find great encouragement when I study the lives of the early disciples, the disciples of Christ. They, like you and I, often misrepresented Christ's redemptive mission. But they all eventually were restored and reformed, uh, with the exception of Judas, Judas Iscariot. And I pointed that out in last week's message. I especially love the story of James and John. These are two brothers. And they traveled, and while they were traveling with Jesus, they took the taunts and the rejections and the scorn of the Samaritans personally. You see, in their indignation and anger, they said something to Jesus. They said to Jesus in Luke 9 and verse 54, he says, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You know, I kind of like these guys. I have a few people in our church that are like this. Some of you, you know, they get a little indignant and, you know, how dare people act this way? And we can become quite judgmental. It's amazing to me how quickly they were willing to embrace the administration of God's wrath. Think, think with me. Think of how restricted and limited they were in their thinking. They were willing to exercise the wrath of God to support their short-sighted love. Jesus rebuked them in verse 55, and he says, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. Wow. You know, I think that the same problem afflicts many believers in the church today. Many sincere Christians do not know what spirit they are of. They don't discern the difference between the spirit of Christ, our Redeemer, and the spirit of judgment or a judgmental spirit. Jesus rebukes them by saying, his disciples that is, the Son of Man did not come, and us I would say probably in verse 56, he says, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. In this context, of course, Jesus is speaking about all men in general. But in the very context of this verse of Scripture, he's speaking to his disciples. They're on their way to Jerusalem. They're traveling through Samaria among the cultural outcasts of the day, the, the Samaritans. These, these Samaritans were scorned and they were reproached by the Jewish people. You see, what had happened is they'd intermarried and they were considered the mongrel race. Uh, in some ways, it's like the colored community of Africa where uh, they're neither white nor are they black. And so they kind of are left out in some ways. They've suffered greatly because of that. Well, not only were these people considered the mongrel race, they were also idolaters. And the, Jew, the Jews hated them. And they looked down on these Samaritans as being outside of the covenant of God, outside of anything worthy of a Jewish person. And uh, in fact, there was a saying, Jesus met a woman at the well and uh, he began to talk to her. She was a Samaritan. And uh, when he spoke to her, uh, she says, what do Jews have to do with Samaritans? That, that's how deep the divide was. You see, 
Jesus, in dealing with his disciples, begins to speak to their Jewish mindset. And he says that even those that you deem to be your enemies, I came to, not to destroy them, but I came to save them. Amazingly, <laughs> these disciples really did learn this lesson. How do we know? Well, after Jesus' death and resurrection, these same disciples were the ones that God used to spread the gospel to the whole known world. This is my desire for us as a church. I would love to see this same substance, this same power working through you and me. You see, our calling as believers is to carry out His mission, to see people and situations redeemed, not destroyed. There's a, an increasing polarization in Christian circles today. There's a, a dichotomy between those who have adopted this kind of hyper-grace, no-consequence-to-sin attitude, and then those that, that I kind of call the legalists who identify, and they really identify with Israel's Old Testament prophets. As believers, and especially as leaders, we're, we're not called to identify with the prophets of old. We have to understand something, that the prophets of old were called by God to bring specific messages of warning and specific messages of punishment to the Jewish people. You and I, we are called to the new covenant. We are called to be redeemers, and we've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. Our pattern is not Old Testament prophets, but Jesus Christ, who brought grace and truth into the world. John 1 and verse 17 says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now let me just stop there for a minute and think about this with me. The law came through Moses for the Jewish people. God made a law to create a new nation, the Jewish nation. But the Bible says that you and I are the heirs of promise. See, the promise was given to Abraham. So the law was always for the Jews. It was never for you and I. It was never for Gentiles. It was always for the Jews. And so for us to go back to law or to go to law, it was never intended for us. It was always intended for the Jewish people. Yours and I, you, you and I, we were always meant for promise. And the promise came through Jesus Christ. Jesus was the seed of Abraham. Jesus was the root of Abraham, and the law was for a season for the Jewish people. <laughs> it's amazing how many of us want to go under that law, and, we, and, and, and although the law is in there for governing nations and things that are excellent, the law of Christ Jesus in our hearts, the law of grace, would cause us to keep those laws, but by grace, because no man can fulfill those laws. You see, the standard for the New Testament believer is love, not law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13 verse 10 says, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You and I, along with every other person in Christ, make up the body of Christ. We are all parts of the same body, one body. Now, we can learn 
many things from the patterns and the principles that are set forth for us in the Old Testament. In fact, there are many types and reflections of Christ depicted through the books of the law and the prophets. We have no purpose greater than to reveal Christ as he revealed himself in the New Testament. You see, he revealed himself as the fulfillment of the law. The, the, the Old Testament prophets were sent to a people who were under the law, who did not have Christ available to them as their Savior. There was no way for the Holy Spirit to indwell them, or, uh, nor were they able to access the full grace of God, which is available to all sinners today. <laughs> James 2 says it this way in verse 10. It says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. You see, in that verse of Scripture, we see that if the Jew violated just one commandment, they were guilty of all the commandments. It wasn't that the Lord didn't love the Israelites. It was that they fell short of the glory of God. And, and God's purpose was not to condemn them, but was to provide a better salvation, the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what you and I have experienced. That's what we've been able to grasp is this saving grace. You see, salvation was to be redemption based not on what man could achieve by obeying the law, not on works, but on the basis of whom he believed on. Romans eleven thirty two. you all know this verse. It says, for God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. That simply means this, that none of us are righteous. All of us are bound up in unbelief. But it wasn't that he would condemn us, but that he would save us, that he would have mercy on us. You see, the Old Testament prophets' exposure of Israel's sin was really in preparation for God's people to embrace mercy. The law only proved one thing. No one could live up to it. None of us can live up to the law. So when we study Jesus' disciples in this passage of Scripture, we see that they're being led out of this Old Testament dispensation. So when they want to call down fire from heaven on their enemies, which would probably have been appropriate in the Old Testament, Elisha called down fire on the prophets of Baal, uh, but Jesus stops them, he, and he corrects them, and he says, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Wow. Can you see the difference in being a New Testament versus an Old Testament believer? Many Christians today, however, argue that God needs to judge sinners for what they're doing. And, you know, quite frankly, there may be some truth in that. In fact, the world may need a good dose of the wrath of God to wake it up. I heard one preacher say it this way. He says that God will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because of what's happening in some parts of the world today. I don't know if that's true. I do believe that we see a, an increase of wickedness, and I, and I don't think it's pleasing to God, nor is it pleasing to any of us. But there's only one person in heaven and on earth who's, worthy, who's really worthy to initiate God's wrath. That's Jesus. The Lamb of God who was slain 
who the Bible says stands making intercession before God's throne on our behalf. Listen to this. In Revelations 5, verses 6 to 14, it says, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and he looked and And he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and every tongue, every people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels around about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the numbers of them were 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing." And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Christ is the only being in the universe worthy to release wrath because of sin. He is also the very one who will do so, since he himself became and is the sacrifice for sin, the Lamb of God, whose offering abides eternally at God's throne, is the only one who has been given authority to open the books of divine wrath. Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus is the sacrifice for all of mankind's sin. He and he alone paid the price for yours and my redemption. Now, we can be assured of this, that Jesus will not release his divine fury until he has fully exhausted his divine mercy. And when judgment finally comes, we can be assured that even then, it will be guided by his motive of mercy giving time for sinners to repent. The Apostle John makes an astonishing statement in 1 John 4, 17. He says, as he is, so are we in this world. I'm always amazed at that verse of Scripture. You see, I want to point out something to you. Our pattern is not the Old Testament pattern prophetic pattern. You know, today I'm nervous a little bit at some of the prophetic voices that are being unleashed in the earth. Our pattern is not prophets, but the Lamb. Our goal is not just to expose sin and sinners, but to unveil and reveal the sacrifice for sin. The Great Commission is to bring healing and 
the message of God's mercy to every creature, every nation, all nations. Christ is the only one that can break the seals. And until he does so, and until he breaks the seals that will lead to his wrath, we, you and I, like our Savior, must stand in intercession before God on behalf of our families, our friends, leaders, society, and our nation. Romans 8.34 says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ that died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Christ, right now, is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession on yours on my behalf. In fact, it's safe to say that intercession is the very essence of Jesus' whole life and his whole ministry. By coming to the earth and by, by dying for our sins, he modeled one extended act of intercession. Every step of his life, coming out of glory, coming onto earth, humbling himself unto the death, the death on the cross, was an act of intercession. Jesus examined the depravity of mankind's sin. He weighed its offenses, its perversity, its repulsiveness. And then in that garden of Gethsemane, he came to this this critical time of, of making a decision. This is the wonder of the gospel. In spite of yours and my sin, in spite of mankind's sin, God so deeply loved the world that he sent his son to die for us, to die for us on a cross. This is the pattern that you and I are supposed to follow out. The same pattern of mercy. We're supposed to be as merciful like he was merciful. We're not back here. I don't want to think that we're minimizing sin because we're maximizing Christ's mercy. There's a huge difference between whitewashing sin and bloodwashing sin. We're bloodwashed, blood-bought. James reveals the underlying principle that compels God, our Father. He said that he is a God of all mercy and that his mercy endures forever. James 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy to those or to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. I just love the thought and the idea that this mercy of God is what's triumphing over judgment. God's merciful. We're under a God of mercy, not a God of judgment right now. It is mercy that will transform the heart of man into the image of Christ. To live our lives full of mercy parallels the heart of God. Jesus in his years of ministry, reached out to those who were despised, like those Samaritans, those that were rejected, scorned, and excluded. He loved those who were rejected by others. His practice of eating with sinners offended the religious people of his day, the Pharisees. The Pharisees even confronted his disciples. In Matthew 9, 11, it says, and When the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. I could just hear the hiss of the serpent in that, the, the, the sneer of these Pharisees, these religious leaders. I love Jesus' answer. In verses 12 through 13, he says, But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, Those who are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus told the self-righteous to go and learn what God meant when he said, I, did, I desire compassion, that is, mercy, and not sacrifice. You see, the church is not where we hold on to some kind of adherence to rituals and sacrifice and do this and don't do that. Rather, rather this is the, the church is where there's an expression of love and an outpouring of compassion to all people, to everyone who comes to the church. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that his house would be a house of prayer for all nations. We know that all true prayer is birthed from love. Intercession is simply a response to the sin and the needs that we as believers encounter in this world. See, we're not called to condemn the world, but to cover the world. We're not called to point out its faults. We're called to pray. First of all, every nation has sinful iniquities operating in the fabric of its citizenry. All cultures have seasons of moral and spiritual decline. In fact, each and every family, and for that matter, every single person can find themselves disquieted spiritually. We need to believe for these times to become turning points. It's times of distress when our intercession, our Christ-like prayers can obtain redemption out of disaster. I want us all to understand this this morning, that the church is not God's tool of anger and God's tool of wrath. We're his instrument of mercy. He said we were called to be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus taught his disciples to pray for those who would persecute or mistreat them. In Matthew 5, 44, he says, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. That's a far cry from what we're seeing in much of the church today. The examples of prayer that we see scattered throughout the scriptures as the answer to everything is so profound. I, I think of Job praying for his friends that had really cursed him and had you know, said some horrible things to him. What did God do? God fully restores him. God tells us, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in turmoil right now, the whole nation of Israel. But what does God say? He says, don't judge it. He says, pray for the peace of that nation. James says it this way. He says, pray for each other so that we might be healed. And then Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4, and you all know this. He says, I exhort you, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. <laughs> you see, when we choose to pray, we move ourselves out of the seat of judgment and into a proactive and intentional place of humbly placing our expectations into the hands of the only one who can really and truly transform our lives, who can only, he, only he can transform our circumstances and even our national dilemmas. 
And I take courage from the people of Israel who were taken into captivity into Babylon. The Daniels and the Shadrach, Meshachs, and Abednegoes of the Bible. Today, many compare the world that we're living in currently with ancient Babylon. I'm not sure that that's an accurate comparison. But if it were, when the Lord exiled Israel to Babylon, he didn't command his people to judge and to criticize their new cities. In fact, Jeremiah 29, 7 says this. God told his people in exile, he said, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you to be carried away as captives. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. See, Scripture commands us to pray for and not against. To pray mercifully and not judgmentally or vindictively. God is calling you and I to step into light, to be those light bearers and pray prayers that are moved by compassion, not condemnation. In fact, the very essence of intercession is to appeal to God for forgiveness and then redemption that this would come to a sinful people. You know, I don't think it's wrong for us to study the ills of our society. But it is wrong to leave it at that and to fail to appreciate the influence of the intercessions of the Christ. We may comprehend the nature and the cause of sin, but do we know the nature and the cause of Christ? Because I'll tell you what that is. It's redemption. God had a plan for redemption. Knowing more about what is happening in this world will not lead to the transformational nature that can only come through stepping into the light of fellowship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The media sees what is wrong with the world, and it either covers it up, propagandizes it, or exposes it. Christ saw what was wrong and died for it. My fear is that if we allow ourselves to become darkened and cynical like our news media, like the woke cancel culture, and like those who are promoting critical race theory and transgenderism and transhumanism, these things will somehow be allowed to begin to creep into the church. And we may lose the very redemptive attitude of our great shepherd. It's time for you and I to take a look at the condition of our own hearts. Have we become hardened? Are we becoming embittered or insensitive to the needs of other people around us? Are we allowing too much information to cloud our spiritual perceptions? Today, I want to encourage us as I close this message to think about how mercy can triumph over judgment. To think about stepping into the light where we can walk in fellowship with God and with his Christ. Think about your walk with Jesus. You see, I believe if we can walk in the light, we can have fellowship with him and with each other. But we become very attractive and we can lead people into that light. But if we grow dark, if we become embittered, then you and I become part of the problem. We become in need of that Savior again. We, need, we, we become in need of that light. 
So today I'm asking you to really consider stepping into the light, moving away from judgment, moving away from any form of embitterment, moving away from allowing the world to harden you. If you're listening to this message and somehow this is appealing to your heart, you may not know Christ today. You may never have received Jesus. But you can. You can ask Jesus to come into your heart and come into your life. and He'll bring you into the light. He'll take darkness from you and he'll give you a new life. Right there on the screen, there's some phone numbers. I'm going to ask you to pick up your phone. Phone somebody. They'll pray with you. They'll tell you what it takes to be a born-again believer. What it takes to be saved. Saved from sin. Saved from this world. Maybe you're a believer and you've become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, the lust for other things, the uh, pride of life. There's all kinds of things that harden us. Sometimes we just get weary. We're just tired of this world. And we kind of give up. I, I want you to redouble your effort today. I want you to say, okay, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a decision today. Again, there's phone numbers right there. There's somebody on the other end of that line. They may not be a counselor, but I'll tell you what, they can get you to one. Uh, if they can't get you to a counselor or a pastor, they can tell you how to get to one. Uh, but we can help you. Right there, that person on the other line has been trained to pray with you. And the Bible says where two agree is touching anything, two or three, it's given to them as their Father who's in heaven. I believe in the power of prayer. And I believe if you would call that number and pray, you would find help today. You would step out of darkness and step back into light. You would begin fellowship. We can even tell you how to get into fellowship, how to fellowship with other believers through cell groups, through special classes that we have to help you work through areas where maybe the enemy has taken advantage of you. Anyway, I want you to know this. We love you. Call that number, and we'll see you again right here next week. God bless you. Thank you for listening to today's message. We pray that you were blessed and that God will continue to transform your life in this season. If you have a testimony or need prayer and counseling, please send a WhatsApp or a call me to plus 263-784-303900 or plus 263-717-459999. We want to hear from you. And we're here for you and are ready to listen to you, to pray for you, and to celebrate with you. So thank you. We love you and stay safe.